Welcome to the FedHeads, a weekly podcast from GuideHouse. Join the FedHeads each week as Robert Shea and a celebrity guest host talk about the arcana of government management and the people who are working hard every day to improve it. Welcome to another episode of FedHeads. In our long quest to find a new co-host, we have another guest. I'm really proud to be joined by my new GuideHouse colleague, Donna Roy, who is a senior advisor uh, for data solutions across defense and homeland security agencies at GuideHouse, formerly of DHS and CFPB. Donna, thank you, and congratulations to you for having the courage to come on and co-host FedHeads. Oh, my goodness. I am so thankful to have this opportunity, and welcome to GuideHouse. Thank you so much. You and your colleagues have been so warm in receiving us. We're really grateful for that. What I'm so excited about as I talk to all of the uh, new GuideHouse employees, former Grant Thornton employees, is the amount of work that you made progress with across the federal government in making sure that the government agencies were using data in the evidence-based, policy-driven way that we set about with the law in 2019. I am so excited at the progress I've seen and the just putting all of that together, I think we're going to explode our data solutions at GuideHouse. So I am so thankful to have you all in our great company at GuideHouse. That's really nice of you. I don't know how much an ardent listener you are of FedEd's, but it's been a running joke that I remind people I was on the Commission on Evidence-Based Policymaking. But because I was really proud of that work and proud of Grant Thornton's contribution to the progress that was made. And, you know, we'll talk about it this month with a couple of our guests um, I, I hope so. It's a great topic. I'm proud of the work that you did. I didn't even know you were doing the work. So, so, but you've been in the data space your whole career. Tell us yeah. about the real Donna Roy. Tell us about your journey, your career journey, your uh, journey trying to mature the government's data management governance practices. It's a journey that starts way back um, when the Marine Corps told me I was going to be in the computer science field shortly after I arrived. I didn't know what computers were and uh, quickly learned. I know it's amazing. Wow. Long time ago, they just threw me in the computer room. It was dark, cold, and they switched, you know, they're like, here's the tape drive over there, and there's the flatters over there, the hard drives, and there's the terminal, start programming. And I gained a deep appreciation for data, worked in, for a brilliant, brilliant uh, Marine Corps lieutenant colonel who was doing the basics of machine learning, predictive analytics for manpower modeling back then and frustrated with the capability that we couldn't make progress because the cost on a supercomputer was just prohibitive for, you know, against the Marine Corps budget. And so fast forward a couple of decades or so, we are now at the place where there are no inhibitors, platform cost for storage for compute and for sort of the way to use it with open source capabilities now, there's nothing in our way to make progress on some of these great goals. There's nothing in our way. As a matter of fact, I'm a little worried that there's nothing in our way because a kid with a credit card and an Amazon account can do a lot of damage with Python and some data. And it's not hard to learn Python. It's really not hard to go out and get data, especially if you know the cost of getting everything about Donna Roy on the black market is about $1,000. So we've gone from frustrated in my career all the way to scared at the capabilities we're sitting on in the marketplace today, but mostly excited to be offering our services and bringing together some of the most compelling things we can do in government right now, because I think right now is the most exciting time to be in data. And tell us about your experiences at 
Homeland Security and CFPB. In particular, what were your roles in those two organizations and how did data play in your walking up the career ladder? I started at the Department of Homeland Security as the head of enterprise data management. It was a relatively new role. I had no people, no funding, but a big mission. Hmm. And sounds, the that sounds like uh, government, federal government. It had a free parking uh, <laughs> spot. Uh, it was less pay, but you know, it seemed like it was a pretty good mission. And we went from, when I showed up, a spreadsheet of 20 rows that said, here's the data in the department. We've started an inventory. And I thought, oh, well, it's a pretty large department, probably more than 20 things that we do with data here. Um, and so we spent a bit of time building data catalogs, everything across DHS, ended up being over 900 or so major data assets. I think we were the first to write a policy back in 2007, 2008 on the broad use of data across the department, that data was a, an asset at the DHS level, not an asset within each one of the components. And so from that position, I drove a lot of doctrine, I think that is still in place today. What is the data policy? What's the data catalog? What is information sharing? And how do programs like the National Information Exchange Model, this sort of exchange standards between federal governments and state and locals, how, how does that make an impact on an overall agency's ability to do better data products? And so I, those first three or four years set on a path of getting really great understanding of data, then spent a considerable amount of time overcoming the information sharing challenges that were the origins of the Department of Homeland Security. And I think we might spend about 10 years doing architecture, understanding some of those challenges, and uh, eventually get off of the GAO high-risk list, I think maybe the first for the department. Took 10 years, but we got off of it, and uh, involved taking on some information sharing programs like the Homeland Security Information Network, which is a broad collaborative network of people sharing information across the country, over 100,000 users. So programs like the National Information Exchange Model, HISN, were pivotal to my understanding of how to embrace some of these changes. And so I kept growing in my portfolio at DHS and ended up with all things identity, very important identity management and the connection to data, all things related to cloud, cloud migration, building platforms so we could enter a data center. And so, you know, I had a lot of responsibilities in the CIO shop around deploying solutions. I left the DHS around 2019 and became the CIO at the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau great agency, great mission. And soon after that, became the chief operating officer, the boss of the CIO, the boss of the CDO, and totally loved that position. And uh, was a great ending position where I retired. Here at Guidehouse now, trying to put all of that together and help our government clients speed up their progress on using data to make a better government for citizens. That's an amazing career so far. Tell me, you know, one of the things Grant Thornton supports is the federal data strategy. And we're going to talk with uh, Nick Hart of the Data Foundation later in our, in our annual survey of chief data officers. Where do you see the federal government's data maturity today? I think um, it's a little all over the place. There are key departments that have made progress on using data most broadly. I think DHS is one of those. The components within DHS just are a truly 
understand how to use data to make the mission work. Uh, Customs and Border Protection as an example. Uh, the State Department is making great strides with their Center for Analytics, but I think some of the smaller departments who only had a, CAO a CDO established because of the Evidence Act are still struggling, in my mind, to get beyond those initial, what's the policy, what's the governance, what does this office do, how is it resourced, where does it sit, what is its authorities, and they're now coming up on what should I be doing? How do I make progress using data? How do I create that momentum that others, other agencies have been able to create? And I think I think they're starting to make progress now, but the Evidence Act certainly created a lot of, and don't take this personally, <laughs> it created a lot of activity around um, the establishment of a new chief, right? And some of, some of that was political. Some of that was a lot of posturing and those conversations on who should be the chief data officer, where they should sit, what they should do, how they should be resourced. I think now we're starting to see that flywheel move much faster now that they've gotten through some of those conversations, some, some of those agencies. Some agencies who live and die by their use of data, there's mission-critical national security agencies. Um, the chief data officer was, was an add-on to an already rich strategy. So, you know, at OMB, we used to say we were the reverse Wells Fargo wagon, you know, that the Wells Fargo wagon tended to go faster, the more of its load got delivered. At OMB, the theory was the more you put on it, the faster it went, the more responsibilities you gave it. OMB didn't appreciate that metaphor. <laughs> but CDOs are facing similar challenges. They've got the institutional responsibilities outlined in the Evidence Act that you mentioned. COVID- yeah highlighted a lot of weaknesses in the statistics we gather and our ability to really track something like COVID and our response to it. The president has likewise highlighted the importance of data in a number of respects, but particularly as it relates to traditionally underserved communities. Do we have the data necessary to assess the extent to which we're reaching with programs and benefits intended beneficiaries. Tell me whether you think the community is buckling from these added requirements or whether it's energized by it or both. I sure hope they are not buckling by it. I think um, to waste such political might in the ability to make progress would break my heart. I would say that we have a significant amount of data that's not used that can be highlighted and brought up into the discussion with the higher levels of every one of these agencies to make progress. I would say though, some of that data is not necessarily, take DEI initiatives as an example, some of that data is just not in a format where we can get to the root cause of some of these things. And so that combination of a statistician and evaluation officer and the CDO is critical to get to, Are we? do we have the right data or do we need different data or do we need to, as Denise Rosk calls it, disaggregate our data so that we can really understand what's happening in some of the programs for which we have potentially created unintended consequences by not looking at the data in its most raw or more disaggregated format. So small populations get lost when you aggregate data up. It's some of those same small populations that may have gotten lost in our policymaking that we now need to, to highlight. And so so it's exciting. I think it's an exciting time. I hope these CDOs see these initiatives, the, the many mandates coming down, especially the mandates around cyber coming down as opportunities for them to partner inside of their agency and make progress. That's great. So generally on these episodes, we parry about 
issues that are on our minds. Anything else uh, that you're paying attention to? Well, um, geez, I'm a little worried about what's happening at the elections in a month. What's on your mind about? The, what's well, on, what's yeah. on your mind about? It, yeah. it is something I pay close attention to. I've spent my formative years in D.C. in the House and Senate oversight committees. Right now you've got unified government, both the House, Senate, and White House in control of the Democrats. That's going to change come January 3rd. Looks like the Republicans at a minimum will take control of the House and maybe the Senate. And we may not know that after the evening of November 8th. It may take a while. But in either case, I think uh, you can expect the Congress's oversight engine to begin to gain a lot more steam than it currently has. And agencies should should be prepared, in my view, the administration should be prepared for a lot of investigations, some substantive, some real political, but also some tougher oversight, some tougher questions being asked about, you know, especially in light of the amount of money that's been invested uh, in COVID response, economic recovery, infrastructure, Inflation Reduction Act, that myriad of bills, each of which enormously complex, massive infusions of money, not all of it perfectly well spent, as you can probably attest, having spent most of your career in government. I think Congress will be looking closely at those. That engine will begin to churn right after GAO releases its biennial high-risk list. This is something I look forward to. You mentioned getting off of it as a accomplishment. The GAO will, you know, give Congress a menu of areas to look into further as it lists those areas that are at highest risk of waste, fraud, abuse, or mismanagement. And I'll be interested to see what stays on that list and what gets added to that list. I hear a lot of data calls and visits to the Hill in the future of the executives in our great government. Any reflections Um, on that from your experience in the Hill, what, what that was like? Oh, my goodness. It was exciting and um, days where I was petrified. I would say as a as a uh, Fed for over 15 years, I saw an expansion and was um, on the Hill uh, as a yeah, asking for more money and getting it in the early days of DHS. We certainly were expanding and then saw the contraction and the hard conversations around contraction. And I remember going up and sort of working with the Daryl Eisler staff on certainly identifying efficiencies, um, uh, which I think we're going to be identifying efficiencies, mm-hmm. if I can read in the tea leaves. What that cost was significant amount of churn and a lack of progress on the real initiatives that either way, we're probably going to go forward. But the amount of time you spend appeasing the auditors, GAO, or even your internal, and the amount of time you go to the Hill and uh, work to explain the funding, explain what you did with the funding. It takes away from making progress on the very initiatives you, you came to the government to lead. It is frustrating as a civil servant who is on neither side, but there to implement the policies of the administration that so much time is taken up in this back and forth conversation in such a divided way uh, in Washington, D.C. right now. Yeah, it'll be a big challenge for agencies not to get too distracted by it. Well, I'm delighted to be working with you, even more delighted that you agreed to join us uh, for these next several episodes. I'm really looking forward to it and can't thank you enough. 
I'm looking forward to um, co-hosting and learning much more about the infrastructure bills and the guests that you've got coming on from Partnership for Public Service. And uh, certainly um, anxious to just nerd out with Nick Hart. That, that's uh, one of my favorite people and working on some of my favorite initiatives. That's but, great. All right. Well, we'll talk to you again soon. Thank you again for having me, Robert. Thanks for listening to The Fed Heads, a weekly podcast brought to you by Guidehouse.